Okay, so welcome everybody. This is the latest instalment of the Herbert Smith uh, Pensions podcast series. Today, I'm extraordinarily grateful for Alex Hutton Mills to be joining us. Alex is the co-founder and head of Pensions Corporate Finance at Cardano Advisory. Welcome, Alex. Uh, morning, Michael. I'm absolutely d- delighted to be here as well. Yes, and and the, this conversation we had we had a dinner about a year ago now, probably over a year ago. Over now. a year, probably. Yeah. <laughs> and there were a few glasses of wine, and we just had a really interesting conversation about. The state of sort of corporate transactions with, with pension schemes and how the regulators broad approach or the regulatory approach over the past sort of 10 years, say, following BHS and Carillion, how that's kind of mapped out in terms of the, the, the regulatory powers. Has that had effect? How's it changed behaviors? How's it changed behaviors of buyers and sellers, of advisors? Yeah. And really the, the, the idea of this was to try and capture some of that. I do suggest maybe we do it over wine again, but it's a bit early in the morning to be doing that. Starting at 10 o'clock, that's, that's definitely a punchy start. <laughs> um, so listen, let me start off with the first question. The, the impact of the criminal powers. So these, these criminal powers come in. Obviously, coming out of BHS, coming out of Carillion, numerous green papers, white papers, consultations, but fundamentally giving the regulator criminal powers to pursue... Originally, it was reckless behavior, and then it, it wasn't reckless behavior. It was something less than that, but you, there were safe harbors for reasonableness. But, but essentially, we've got very, a very broad power that criminalizes quite a lot of normal behavior, unless it's reasonable, yeah. corporate behavior, unless it's reasonable. Yeah. And the original sort of, I'm going to say outcry, because I think it's fair to say it was a bit of an outcry from the pensions advisory industry anyway, lawyers and covenant advisors and everything, was just like, well, this is, you're, you're criminalising normal behaviour, unless it's reasonable, and who's going to, you know, reasonableness can shift, and it's all going to be very hindsight and re- real kind of issues. And so, really, because it's, what, what's your experience that it's had? Has it had any impact? Because there was a lot of people saying, well, people aren't going to want to do business with DB schemes or are they going to go increasingly for clearance? And so what, what's been your experience? Yeah, and, and maybe it's worth rolling back the clock to when the Pensions Act 2004 was um, was being, well, was a bill and then ultimately came into force because there, there was quite a lot of similar opprobrium at the time about the fact that the pensions regulator, formerly known as OPERA, was going to be given these moral hazard powers for financial support directions and contribution notices more, more particularly. And there was a lot of concern that that was going to have a serious detrimental impact on corporate activity. And it was unclear because of the breadth of the powers what was going to happen. Roll forward from 2006 to actually where we are today. We've had BHS, we've had Carillion. So this is, I've always described this as evolution rather than revolution, but criminalising certain incremental powers that the regulator has been given is always going to attract headlines. But there's the question of what's the likelihood of being able to actually have the right sort of evidence in most circumstances to be able to have a successful claim um, against directors and other persons that may be involved in those relevant actions. So I think what it's done is it's certainly got people's attention. But I think the um, the aspect that's had more of an impact on um, transactions is is 
is more the additional contribution notice powers mm-hmm. um, and the two lenses that um, that parties are now having to think about um, corporate events through. Mm-hmm. And I'm using corporate events in the broadest term, whether that's dividends, whether that's transfer pricing changes. Um, and, and interestingly, I think what it's done is in the same way back in 2004, 5, 6, the first thing that happened was everyone thought there was going to be a rush for clearance. There was lots of noise about clearance for the contribution notices, not necessarily for criminal powers because you can't get clearance mm-hmm. for the criminal mm-hmm. powers. So I think what's happened is there's been a dramatic increase in engagement with the regulator to try and understand where the edge of the envelope is yep. as it goes to use of the contribution notice powers. So the regulator who likes to influence things through behavior has actually mm. been involved earlier in transactions because parties are talking to the regulator earlier about the likelihood of um, the powers being engaged mm. and and then thinking about the impact of criminal powers. The, the, the reality, I think, is you know our, our job as advisors, so you know, lawyers, covenant advisors, be that for potential purchasers or sellers, is really trying to understand how the supervisory arm of the regulator is engaging with you relative to the likelihood of enforcement yeah. and the regulator being engaged. And I think that's that's fundamentally where we are in our call, trying to help clients understand, you know, is there a gap and, and um, at what point might the enforcement um, team be engaged and, and, and think about using those powers in the right sort of way. So I think it hasn't, it, it's forced, it forced us to understand better and engage with the regulator, but I don't necessarily think it's had a, a dampening effect on transaction volumes. I think there are other things that have had a, a dampening effect on transaction volumes in terms of the broader macroeconomy. Yeah, and, and it, it, the data certainly shows, by the way, I've got a, a, a sheet in front of me that shows broadly the number of public M&A deals in the year versus those public M&A deals with a, with a DB scheme. And uh, bearing in mind these are public M&A transactions, as pure, there's a broad correlation. So, so roughly... Roughly over the past sort of 10 years, we've had between 40 and 60-ish public M&A deals and roughly about between, I'd say, 18 and 10 of those roughly are, are sort of oh, DB scheme. And they broadly correlate. Yeah. Interesting, the one year that they don't correlate is the year after the BHS, Philip Green yeah. stuff. Yeah. Now, very difficult with a small... I mean, the first thing to notice is actually that's a small sample size, you know? Less than 20 deals a year with DB schemes, and not all of those DB schemes will be the the significant, the Morrisons or the stagecoaches or your your go-aheads or or things like that. Um, So difficult to pull out real things, but I think it's absolutely right. Since the the 2000... Well, certainly since the 2001 Act was brought into force, there's been no noticeable dip in DB scheme. So I think that's, I think that's absolutely right. Yeah. The, the point that you made there, which I think is the really interesting one and goes to the heart of sort of the regulatory approach, is this idea of regulating by expectation setting, so soft power yeah. in the sense of, and is it, the regulator's issue is never that it didn't have enough powers. It, 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 even before the criminal act, it had quite, significant powers amongst all of the sort of regulatory sort of FCA and CMA and various regulatory bodies within the UK has quite significant powers to, to investigate, to search premises, yeah. to request information, to make life really, really quite cumbersome and difficult. And those people that have had sort of um, information requests from the regulator on sort of 48 hours notice and those kind of things will, will sort of attest to that. That was never really the problem to the use of them. I and mean, we've seen in the sort of, sort of Fox Clever litigation you know, 10 years to overcome some of the legal 
difficulties with FSDs or contribution notices. And yeah. it's because when legislation is untested for the first time and you're going through it, you will get just very clever lawyers and barristers picking up on every single point. And so I think there was a frustration at the regulator, which isn't, I think it's fair to say, the most well-resourced of the, the government sort of authorities and agencies, to that they had all these paths, but it really couldn't exercise them. So it was always the sort of the threat. And we have both been on the transactions where the regulator has just either come into a room or just sat there and sort of said it was a referee, not a player, and it was quite clearly a, a player piece. So it pays BHS on the side of the trustees and would either negotiate for the trustees or, or say things like, well, if you want to do that, we'll be mindful of our of our FSD and contribution notice powers and we reserve the rights. And I think the interesting thing that's happened subsequent to the criminal powers is the regulators, when they when they, they previously sort of said, oh, it's up to you. If you want to come for clearance, come for clearance and we'll get in the game yeah. and we'll do it. Yeah. Can't do that with the criminal powers. Yeah. It was interesting, the, 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 the APL, the um, Association of Pension Lawyers Conference this year, had a panel on corporate pen, and the, the, the regulator was there. And the, one of the last questions that was asked the audience, one of those things that they asked the audience. The Columbia, the, the Columbia question. Yeah, right? he said, one last thing. <laughs> um, was, you know, if we go for clearance, and if a deal is clear and cleared, does that mean it's out of scope of criminal powers? And all the lawyers said no, and the regulator said no, and that regulator was quite clear. Yeah. That the clearance does not. So if you're in the world where you've got these quite broad criminal powers that need to fit in with reasonableness, but you can't basically go for pre-clearance, you can pre-clear the FSDs, the CNs. You kind of are left in a world where, well, am I I'm either just going to wear this risk and the advisors and stuff like that and get as comfortable as I can, or I'm just not going to do the deal. And I think what we're saying in data, as I said before, people are doing the deals, which means increased pressure on the regulator to give that soft comfort. Now, I, I don't know if you had this experience, but back, I, so I did a deal in 20, it would have been 2018. It was an so it was a, it was a business being bought out in insolvency and we were acting for the acquirer. Yeah. It was very significant DB liabilities and we were in basically negotiations with the trustees about providing security, etc. And there was one of those situations where the regulator was in the room and we were looking for comfort from the regulator that the deal that we'd reached was broadly, without going for clearance, we didn't want to go for clearance, quite frankly, it wasn't the time to go for clearance, yeah. but we just wanted to nod that this kind of deal, and the regulator would absolutely not engage. If you want to comfort, we are not, we're not signing it off, we'll sit in the room and sort of suggest for more, 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 but we will not sign it off, we will not give you any comfort, we're not going to put anything in writing, yeah. we're not going to do anything at all. If you want to come for clearance, you've got to come for the audience. I think that attitude has changed now. I, I agree. And, and in fact, um, so we were advising a corporate, a European corporate that was looking to um, spin off a business division. Um, there were three pension schemes, one of which uh, went with the carve out and two which stayed behind. Slightly different level of, levels of funding. Um, and and again, I guess the way that we tend to think about things is you have these two new contribution notice tests of so the employer resources and the insolvency test within the parameters of a Venn diagram, where around the resources and the insolvency test, you then have the broader material detriment test. So because the business unit being sold off was profitable, you ended up triggering the resources test. Not the insolvency test, but the resources test, which deals with profitability. Um, And we had a relatively cautious um, European client that wanted to just be comfortable. 
that there was limited risk with this activity um, because of the different funding levels across the three different schemes. Mm -hmm. So we ended up going for, um, how can I describe this, clearance for CNs in the old world because yes. the form didn't exist Correct. in the new world. But we ended up effectively adding an addendum, which was a request for clearance in quotes for the resources. Yeah. Um, trigger that we had we tripped across and ultimately they they came back with some helpful language that said that this isn't a matter that requires clearance so we're almost back in the old world again yeah of um soft clearance or the no action letters yeah and this this was you know um the we have written confirmation from the regulator around soft clearance and, and i think that the the interesting thing will be how the regulator describes their willingness to do that. Which mm. In my case, they, they gave the soft clearance, but in your case, they didn't. <laughs> yeah, but I, and I think, so I, it, timing wise, was that, that was post 2021 and the, so mine was pre-2021. I think that's the difference. Yeah. Because I think the regulator, I, I suspect the regulator's been pushed more to kind of Give, give that kind of stuff. Because there is no, there is no safe part. Now, what, what's really interesting about it is what you've just said, because after the, the CNs and FSDs first came into effect in 2025, they were slightly inundated with these requests because I think the, certainly the legal community took quite a conservative approach said, yeah. well, why not go for clearance? Let's go for clearance. And they got completely inundated and basically said, do not come for clearance unless this is material detriment. Yeah. Which is slightly catch-22 because you're basically saying, well, there is going to be detriment. This is how we think we're going to fix it. Are you happy with this fix? And it is never a quick process. It is a slow process because the regulator, quite rightly, does a lot of work getting comfortable. There'll be, there'll be pushback. There'll be challenge, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. It'll be a, a long old process. You can do it quite quickly. I've, I've done one in two weeks, but I've also done one in three months. Yeah. And so it's interesting that you say that you went for clearance and actually they said no. This isn't necessary. This is actually, you're fine. And the, the interesting thing about I, and we've discussed this previously, I actually think the regulator does gets, comes in for quite a bit of criticism from time to time. And it's obviously the, the review that's going on about their effectiveness at the moment. Yeah. Their approach, given that they have never, ever really gone after a high profile corporate target yeah. in the sort of U.S. enforcement regulatory, we're going to go, we're going to go after a big name. We're going to target that person and that impact of that will trickle down. Yeah. They, and whether, whether you could say it was, it was actually BHS and hauling or, or, or even, I, I discussed it before, the parliamentary hearings that, that were the, the Working Pensions Committee hauling people in front. It's, a, it has affected the behavior mm. by and, by and large. Mm. I think when a big deal gets done, so whether it's, a go ahead or a, a Morrison's or John Lang KKR and things like that. The, the advisors will tend to get together yeah. and before you get, you, you, you will have a conversation with the client saying, listen, you need to get good covenant advice. You need to understand the impact on the pension scheme and yeah. you need to work out what, what a, a reasonable package, yeah. package is. And so I think there's scope or room for potentially more challenge there to, to, to test the test the boundaries of that, to test potentially to push back against the the assumptions that we need to, because I think the regulator is building up these level of assumptions and an expectation setting and particularly one transaction importing onto another transaction. Yeah. What, what do you think about that? Well, well, so I, I agree with that. I, I think, I think some of that may be affected by 
matters that are not yet in existence. So the DB fund, the new DB funding code, because to some extent, <clears throat> again, that's evolution rather than revolution, because it's trying to clarify um, for trustees, for sponsors, for purchasers, what the end game should look like. And certainly with Fast Track, which is not intended to be a you know sort of panacea for things, but it gives you target parameters so that there's less regulatory oversight. That seems to provide, I wouldn't call it a safe harbor, but a set of targets as a purchaser as mm. you're thinking about what a mitigation package ultimately needs to lead towards. So mm. I think, I think there's some, there's certainly some clarification that's being provided um, through the DB funding code. I think the harder piece of legislation that hasn't come into play yet that's going to um, potentially pause for reflection further is around notified yeah. events yeah. because I think that will become either quite difficult to comply with and we will spend lots of our time um, you know providing advice to clients about why it's appropriate not to notify at a particular point in time so I think there's still going to be lots of engagement with the regulator and there's, yeah. there's still going to be um, you know lots of need to make sure that the that ultimately clients are comfortable with where the pension scheme is. But I think the one real benefit is that it's forced um, DB pensions way back up the agenda so that people have to think about it clearly mm. um, as they're thinking about transactions. More mm. Yeah, well, I want to come on to the notice of regime because I, I, do, I think that is much more tangible yeah. for corporates. That is, you have got an obligation. If you breach that obligation, you potentially now got a million pound fine. And a lot of that <laughs> depends on when a decision is made in principle. Yeah, yeah. And there's, there's a lot of dancing angels dancing on pinheads about is that when you're going for a round of golf or yeah. you, you're having a chat and or is it a board decision or whenever it's... But we'll, we'll come back to that, I think. That'd be, be good if we can. But the point about the DB funding code leads us on, I think, in the, the, the transaction context about this idea of valuation. Yeah. So one of the, the key dynamics on, on an acquisition, not not so much on a takeover, but in terms of pricing, especially with private M&A. Yeah. What, what value do I attribute to this DB, DB scheme? And I think we've, we have seen a gradual evolution, again, your words, rather than revolution, in, in how buyers and sellers approach that. Now, it used to be you would try and get away with an accounting basis. For your pension scheme, yep. you say, look at the lovely surplus that's a long, existing. A long time ago, but yes, yes. <laughs> look, look at this lovely surplus that's um, existing in my pension scheme, and and then it was, and then it kind of moved to the the TPs, is that gradually moved to the TPs. But I think sellers have become wise, particularly on smaller pension schemes. I think that all of a sudden you see a valuation agreed just before the the assets marketed, and you start to pin on that. And, and my view is generally the starting point, certainly. So the, or the, the median median point is is a is a self sufficiency where you argue around what the guilt rate is. Yeah. Is it going to be sort of 0.25 or is it going to be 0.75 sort yeah. of 25 basis points, 75 basis points? But I have seen transactions where actually you, you can say with a straight face now, if you're a buyer, I'm just going to take the buyout value. Yeah. And it used to be even I think even five years ago you'd be slightly left out of a room, particularly if it was an auction sale process. And I think even in an auction sale process, that's pretty punchy now. Yeah. But I have I have seen people, that US clients, just not willing to take the risk. You're saying, I'm going to price in all of the risk, yeah. and I'm not going to 
is that does that mirror your experience? Yeah, I mean, I, so I think I think again, there's a there's a couple of things. So we've definitely moved away from the old world of uh, of accounting, and you know, te- technical provisions is is in the eye of the beholder ultimately. So I think I think you're right in that there's been a, a trend towards low dependency or self sufficiency. Actually, the question is almost: um, Do you strike a path so that your technical provisions are equivalent to self-sufficiency or low dependency over a relatively short period, and then back solve to, to get the right mitigation package because of the direction of travel of the funding code? So, I think that's definitely becoming more market. Um, the, there's still a question as to who funds that and how that's funded, whether yeah. that's deducted from the purchase price or the, whether that's effectively partly deducted but there's there's reliance on investments yeah. underpins and contingent support to get you to that target so there's still the cash versus pressure on returns um which which is a good debate that you should be having as buyers and sellers and, and, and trustees around how to think about the pension scheme risk um definitely overseas buyers because and again that's probably because there's been more convergence on buy-in pricing if they can find a way of um, pricing it on a buyer basis and still being competitive in an auction then you know why why wouldn't they want to deal mm. with that and and then have that effectively as a path to defeating the risk of that pension scheme once they own the asset. So there's there's definitely a, a trend towards um, you know the more prudent measures, which actually makes the regulator's job a bit easier because they've got less of an issue around um, you know the risk and the material detriment. Yeah, and and the interesting that how how do you see the dynamics playing out between buyer seller trustee. And regulated because you've got this really interesting dynamic of of often the seller will have people on the trustee board whether yeah. they're conflicted out and have to recuse themselves but the seller will have a, a a connection to the trustees and I think public M and A particularly um, uh, hostile takeovers. Trustees are, are can be seen as a bit of a defence mechanism, and perhaps perhaps that's a bit of a separate discussion. But but in terms of the valuation process, the trustees often want to see, see transactions as an opportunity to to level up funding. Well, I think sorry, that's probably the way wrong way of thinking. I think the regulator sees that, yeah. and I think we we've both seen yeah. the regulator actively monitors transactions, yeah. particularly public M and A regularly monitors new sources, yeah. will proactively get in touch with trustees yeah. to find out what they're doing. Are you are you considering mitigation? What are you doing? So do you, how, as an advisor, so you, say I'm, I'm looking to acquire, so we're acting for, say we're acting for buyer. How do you go about assessing that, that quantum? And do, how do you, configure in the, the the trustees because they could be used potentially as because if you yeah, can level up the funding a sword and, or a shield yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> um, exactly so so I, I think there's a there's a quite substantive difference between private M&A and public M&A Correct. because with with public M&A you have the dynamic of there are limits around how much um, actual information you're going to be able to have because of price yeah. sensitive issues and material on public information etc um and the dynamic there is that under the takeover code, certainly if it's a UK PLC that's a target, then the trustees have the rights, not the obligation, but the right to include an opinion. So they, they effectively have a seat at the table um, to, to involve themselves in the discussion um, in terms of the impact of the, of the transaction on the covenant. So they, 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 they've been given 
um, a free pass to consider the impact and then consider whether it's appropriate to look to level up as part of those discussions yeah. Yeah. potential buyers. So if we're advising the buyer, ultimately, you know, you need to recognise that that's a dynamic that the trustees have available to them. And it's almost it's almost always better to be on the front foot, particularly in a public M&A context, to control the narrative and, and come up with a mitigation package that, that sort of makes things more likely to be successfully executed. Yeah, because you've got to ultimately convince the trustees that this is a, an appropriate package. You've got to have the directors comfortable for the reasons we touched on under the Pension um, mm. Schemes Act. Um, that they're not doing anything to, um, you know, detrimentally affect the likelihood of members receiving their benefits over mm. time. So that, so that the directors of the target board themselves need to be comfortable that the package that the trustees are negotiating mm. is appropriate. So, so you, you've got this slightly unusual dynamic where you've got the regulator as player but teacher in the corner, yeah. marking your homework. Um, you've got the buyer wanting to engage with the trustees because that is ultimately the negotiation they have. And you need the, the, the target board to be comfortable that the deal that the trustees have negotiated is appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. So it's quite, it's quite an interesting yeah. dynamic in it within the context of the takeover code timetable. Yeah. And, and where I, I, I can, I completely agree. And one of the interesting things I find as well is if you're, if you're target board and you've got multiple Bidders, yeah. uh, which we had recently, we acted on the, the, the go-ahead transaction that had multiple boards, um, and this isn't necessarily a comment on that, it's just in the, in the, the, the example, um, but you've got a situation where both, both bidders want to have access yeah. to the trustee board yeah. to get comfortable, because yeah. they want to they almost just test the water, sort of see what it's like, but as target board... You want to control that process. Yeah. And so there's this interesting dynamic about before you put your offer in, do you allow do you allow access? Now I've I've had it said to me, it is absolutely market standard for us to have a have a meeting with the trustee board prior to um and I I would push back on that slightly. I don't think it's necessarily market standard. As you said, there's only about twenty of these deals yeah. a year, less than twenty of these deals a year. Yeah. Um What's market? It, well, well, well yeah. quite. Um, but the interesting thing is, if, if, if you are saying, as the target board, this is not going to be detrimental, because this is an acquisition, you have told us, you know, based on what you've told us of what you're doing, um, in terms of use of debt, or whether it's cash, or equity, or however you're financing yeah. it, yeah. there shouldn't be any detriment. And you've, you've said to us, perhaps, no, in your 2.7, you've said no intention, yeah. and therefore no detriment. So we don't think we, we, you can engage, and we'll engage once the either the offer offer letter is out there, and you're you're because that's what you want the target board. Get your offer out there. You're bound now to make that offer. Yeah. We don't necessarily want you to talk to our trustee board because both of them and either unsettling them or uncertainty to the process. The, how yes. how you so, so again, I think I think that's that's interesting for. Um, for a couple of reasons, and, we'll, and then we'll come back to private company distinction yeah. on this as well. Um, it, it's interesting for a couple of reasons because one, one of the uh, before you put a 2.7 out, um, uh, which is which is the um, firm intention announcement, you you as a bidder want to be sure that you're making a sensible starting point as an offer. Yeah, um, but you're required to notify other other stakeholders, including the pension scheme. Yeah, so um, any which way 
a copy of the firm intention announcement will be sent to the trustees uh, as part of that process. So in fact, it's the target board that sends that. Um, yeah. so, so to some extent, as a bidder, you have a legitimate interest in making sure that when the trustees receive the firm intention, a copy of the firm intention announcement, that you've had a, a reason to engage with them beforehand because you want to make statements in the 2.7 announcement that may relate to the pension scheme and certainly around intentions on yeah. what you're intending to do. So I, I, I think you know, you've know you got a legitimate argument that says, well, I, I need to engage with the trustees if there's detriment, um, but I'm trying to argue that it's not material detriment, mm. or even if there's no detriment, because I sort of want to make sure that I'm, I'm comfortable that they understand and they're not going to turn around and say something unhelpful in a public context once I've started the, type, the takeover timetable. Yeah. yeah. No, and you it's a very interesting judgment call, isn't it? The 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 two point seven versus the offer, because there will be there will be targets out there that have such material pension schemes. Let me just BT, for example. Yeah. Um, that you are not going to do that deal. That deal is not getting done unless a deal is done with the trustees yeah. over funding. Yeah. So the way it would likely play out would be you would probably want to now whether you can try and have a discussion ahead of your 2.7 before your 2.7 you're going to have some analysis done and then road test it now whether you just go for the 2.7 and then you're on the clock and try and and try and get it away but it, it you, you the, the 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 dynamics of that are very interesting about just the timing of the approach yeah and trustees. and and i and i think you know at the risk of repeating ourselves i think that doesn't get any easier if the new notifiable events um, regulations come into force as they are currently drafted. Yeah. 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 Because, um, you know, how, how when is a decision in principle made and by whom? And um, as part of the decision to go ahead with a change of control in some shape or form, you're going to want to understand what what's happening to the pension scheme. Yeah. It's hard to do that um, unless you're engaging with the trustees in a meaningful way before yeah. a decision in principle is made. So it's slightly a question of how do you square the circle of the timetable, particularly in a public context, of um, you know not tripping up and having to make um, announcements about being in talks with the target board, yeah. um, and trying to do a deal, particularly for something as large as as a you know as a BT or, or similar. Yeah, and that, I think that's what the notified events framework will ultimately do in a practical sense. It will import a lot of the dynamics you've currently got in a public M&A environment into a, a private M&A. Yeah. Uh, unless you, you know, take quite a punchy view of when yeah. a decision is reached in principle, yeah. and then, then you've got to engage. It's going to be very difficult, I think. I think the regulators already said in terms of its expectation. It is, it is before you engage in a heads of terms or, or something like that, or when you engage with... So... That's going to make that better, and then you're bringing the trustee into that dynamic. Yeah, and 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 the, the reason I think it's it, it's complicated, and again, it's the topic of another podcast, is um, there are clearly going to be tensions between what the takeover code requires you to do um, as a bidder or as a target board, um, what the listing rules require you to mm. do, and um, and what the regulators saying yeah. you should be doing in, in that context. So you you'll, you'll certainly have um, tension, if not collisions. And I, I think it's, again, a good argument to sort of say, I think the regulator, it, the regulator is looking to codify mm. effectively what it sees as normal, behavior. normal market behaviour yeah. and what it's encouraged as market behaviour. Yeah. 
And actually, if the regulator could point to through its Section 89 reports or something like that, where, where it, it, that behaviour has not been met, I think I'd have a bit more... Kind of a bit more comfort or justification. Okay, well, they're they're really trying to address behaviour that is 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 going on. But really, what they're doing is saying this is what we this is, and it was the same with the DB funding code. It was this is what this is what good schemes are doing. This is what good governance kind of kind of looks like to us. Well, okay, then just encourage that good, and it gives them the flexibility to do it. I I I do worry in codified there's going to be unseen consequences or impacts that that are going to be unhelpful. I think yeah. for the regulator, and whether it's increasingly numbers of people coming them for, for, for clearance or for soft comfort, or yeah. to have some kind of avenue they provide for that. But and, and and I think where that then flows back to is resourcing at the regulator, because if there are if there's activity, if there's normal M and A activity or stressed M and A activity or distress in restructuring, <clears throat> the 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 challenges you've got from a, um, a sort of regulatory perspective of having um, enough resources to deal with complicated issues may, may be a sort of a challenge that the regulator's got to meet. And ultimately, at the moment, they're trying to defray that onto um, the advisory market to help them as much as possible. And ultimately, it's the trustees who have to do the initial analysis of um, the impact of events in order to provide that support to the regulator. So I think there's there'll be pressure on trustee advisors to um, to sort of lean in as much as possible to, to help the regulator uh, effectively discharge its, its statutory duties in these sorts of scenarios. Mm. So where do, you, where do you think it's leading then in terms of, we're looking at, looking at though the DB funding code's going to come in October, query whether they're going to, I mean, off the top of your head, if you're going to be a betting man, do they do they scrap the DB funding the the next five events regime? Can you know, or do they they keep it with a slight a tweak, or do they keep it in its current form? I I think if you look at what happened with the Pension Schemes Act 21, I think um, there's a good chance it stays in its current form, and then there's guidance around the regulations that provides a little bit more clarity. And the only question then is how how permissive that guidance is and, and, or how helpful that guidance is um, in, in us making decisions and advising clients as appropriate. I'm going to be a bit more optimistic from a call, but I, I think they might rethink the entire thing. Oh, okay. I, th- I okay. think they might. I don't have any... any I, I, just, I just think the hiatus on it has been so long. They've moved from... I think the last thing was that it got postponed till the autumn and then it was the winter... And now I think they're, they're kind of just rethinking it generally. Yeah. So I, I wonder whether it might just go away. Um, because if you're going to do, or it will come back with some very kind of tight parameters yeah. around things. But I, I think, I slightly think it cuts against the grain of what, what the current government is trying to do in terms to be pro-business and sort of cutting through red tape and, and stuff like that. And I don't think it adds... Yeah, I mean, and, 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 so, and I suppose some, 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 some of the support for my supposition is just <laughs> we've had in other areas of government the National Security and yeah. um, you know and um, an Investment Act, which you know focuses on specific sectors, but ultimately is is a it's an additional overlay in terms of anti-competitive um, behaviour. So there's there's the um, SEGA, the um, uh, the the new insolvency regulation or legislation yeah. that came into power that introduced restructuring plans which 
is intended to be more permissive. And then on the other hand, you've got you've got the National Security and, uh, and, and Investment Act, which is um, which challenges doing business in the UK. So I think we've got regulations and legislation that's moving in slightly differing directions, which is why I think it's it's actually hard to call where. Yeah. You know, 12 events will go. Yeah. Well, let's see. We can do another podcast in the year I'm, and I'm see. Happy. I'm happy. I'm happy to take a better. Well, well, let's do, let's do that. Let's do that. Excellent. Someone can get away. Last question for you before we go. I just because it's, it's just an area that I find really interesting. DB consolidated. Yeah. Is this going to be their year? Are we going to finally sort of, we had a, a big, do you know what? I forgot the year now. I think it was 2019. We yeah. had a big ramp up. Clara came out in the market. Pension Superfund came out in the market. Currently, only one super fund is, is, has passed, and you have to be careful with your terminology here, has passed the regulators. It is not an approval process. It is an assessment process. Yeah. So Clara has passed that. We are yet to see any transactions either specifically being cleared or announced. It's been discussion, discussion being ongoing, focused largely around the sort of PPF plus type places. Mm. What do you think? Is this going to be their year? Are we going to get it off the ground? Um, so you, you're, I, I, you're, I'm glad you you use the language of pass the assessment because I wasn't sure I was going to need to use the word authorised when it's not an authorisation. Um, so so Clara has been um, assessed as being appropriate, um, and the other consolidation vehicle hasn't yet, the Pension Super Fund. Um, so I think the challenge that they were always going to have was the broader macro environment. And where, um, following the gilts crisis, you've had funding levels improve and gilts move in the direction they have, um, that has suddenly made insurance transactions nearer term and much more attractive. Yeah. That, that, by definition, makes it harder for pension schemes in, in the main to think about passing the gateway test. So yeah. the universe, which I think was probably relatively small anyway, um, is probably becoming clearer because I think it's easier for trustees and corporates to think about the insurance market rather than the alternative capital solutions. There's still a place. It's just I think we haven't got the right macroeconomic conditions or the right stars to align um, for the right sort of scheme for, for those consolidator vehicles to be um, the right place to go as we, as we currently sit. So I think with more stress in the market, I think that becomes... Mm. Easier, but I think we still need a potential legislative change um, in, in the PPF regs around um, the need to go for an insurer when you're talking about PPF plus deals. So I think what, what would be really helpful is if there was, um, you know, more clarity around alternative capital, alternative solutions for PPF plus deals. Yeah, and and it needs to be it needs to be factored in. If 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 DB consolidators are going to be a significant part of the market, we do need that clarity because trustees themselves will want to target that as an outcome. Yeah. Because if they're currently targeting, so, so those, are those schemes currently targeting self-sufficiency on a particular basis, yeah. and, and Fast Track has suggested that that's, that's 0.5% in terms of the discount rate. The, those will be the, the, the ones in, in the sort of scope. But if, if, as you just said, the, you know, the gateway test, if you're too close to buying out with the insurer, you're not going to meet that gateway test. Mm-hmm. So I do think It'd be really good to see. I think the regulator, to be honest, I think the regulator has done a, 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 as good a job as it could. Others might disagree with that in terms of pushing this. They were given quite a difficult task by DWP, who said there is not enough room in the Pensions Act 2021 mm-hmm. for DB consolidated super fund legislation. But we want you, regulator, to come up with a regulatory framework that works. Mm-hmm. 
using the clearance process test. And I, I think they've, they've, they've tried to do that. But it'd be really good, I think, if they are going to go. And I, I think they're actually conceptually a good idea. A good idea. Yeah. I think they can form a, a decent part of the, the segment of the market. I think we've, we've got a lot of bottleneck in the insurance. Yeah, and, and I come from a place where I, I was part of a team that used to do these alternative capital strategies and consolidated deals, but in a in, in a bank environment rather than in a corporate environment. Yeah. So, so ultimately, I, I you know I do think having alternatives to insurance is healthy for the market, um, and it's appropriate because it gives it gives a a cohort of schemes de-risking options and endgame options. Yeah, and and of course we I mean it'd be a miss of us to say there are there are those capital backed yeah. third party capital structures. Emerging in the marketplace, we've got the Aspinall Cup uh, partners uh, transaction that's, that, that got away. So, you know, it's going to be an area, I think, of increasing focus. Yeah, agreed. Excellent. Okay. Alex, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for the invitation. I, I really enjoyed the discussion and happy to come back and make a second appearance. Yeah, well, we'll get, we'll, we'll, we'll see where our bet gets us. Maybe we can use the, when the government comes out with the, the next notifiable event framework and it's much more stricter and I'm proved completely wrong. <laughs> or, or I am. I, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm often wrong in bets. So yeah, okay. Thanks very much. All the best.